Greetings, and welcome to episode eight of the Heavy Metal Bebop Podcast, a series of conversations about jazz and metal. I'm your host, Hank Steamer. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review there, spreading the word via social media, or even just telling a friend. Any of this is a huge help and greatly appreciated. And as always, in addition to Apple Podcasts, this show is also available at heavymetalbebop.podbean.com. That's heavymetalbebop.podbean.com or via the Podbean app. So our guest this time around is the keyboardist and composer Jan Hammer. As anyone familiar with this interview series has most likely gathered, the Ma Vishnu Orchestra is something of an obsession for me. Countless artists and groups contributed to the early blending of jazz and rock from Miles Davis to Cream, but it's hard not to hear the first Ma Vishnu album as a true game changer in this field. Jan's passionate, virtuosic keyboard playing was a crucial element of the group, and his time with Ma Vishnu was only one brief chapter in his career. In this interview conducted in his home studio in upstate New York, we touch on the birth and development of Ma Vishnu Orchestra, as well as Jan's collaborations with great musicians across the jazz and rock spectrum, from Tony Williams, Elvin Jones, Sarah Vaughan, and John Abercrombie, to Jeff Beck, Eddie Van Halen, Carlos Santana, and Journey's Neil Sean. Jan couldn't have been more enthusiastic or generous with his time, and it was an absolute honor speaking with him. To find out more about Jan and his work, including the 2018 album Seasons Part 1, go to janhammer.com. All right, let's get into it. You'll hear a little bit of Eris, a Jan Hammer Tony Williams duet from Tony's 1978 album, The Joy of Flying. And after that, my conversation with Jan Hammer. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we're all good. Okay, so, so, so you're you're all set to just get started. You can go. Cool, cool, cool. Um, yeah, so you know, I, I I've read a lot about obviously your your early background. It seems like you know jazz was sort of there from the beginning for you. Um, you know, in, in terms of your mother being a singer and and all that. Um, and but what I haven't read a lot about is sort of where rock and things like that come into the picture for you. Like I know that you moved. You know, you moved to America, I believe, in 68 and then started being exposed. I, I believe I heard you met Hendrix and things like that around that time. Yeah. But I'm curious, um, kind of, if you could take me through a little bit of like, you know, the jazz background <clears throat> and then also talk to me about like where rock comes into the picture okay. for you. Well, basically, in the beginning, it was jazz and nothing but jazz. I was, uh, and I was also going to be a doctor. <laughs> Overall, that was my... I mean, I, this was set in stone. I was my father, all my relatives, aunts, uncles—they were all doctors. So that was where I was gonna go. And then music just got the best of me, and it was basically jazz piano. And and uh, 
in a you know typical sense with a, you know playing in a trio and and but jazz would have been it for forever except you know you go to high school and start hearing rock <laughs> and like any any kid in america would understand you uh you get exposed to the pure energy and fun that rock you know had, had in itself and there was a lot of people initially didn't realize that improvisation could coexist in that world so i think when you said i mean i, I met i met hendrix when i was here in in new york but I, i basically really met him first on a on albums and i, I you know i fell for it really deep like the the first you know beginning when when i first heard hendrix i said i just could not believe what was going on and as my jazz spirit totally connected to it so you weren't really making you weren't really making much of a distinction there it was just kind of like you know all all music that was that was right all the, all the music that had the the relentless energy like the best best of jazz for instance if you listen to john coltrane there is something totally like ruthlessly going moving forward mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and and that same sort of an energy just grabbed me from jimmy's playing too and uh so i i totally got the connection and i figured i it, it wasn't really that fast i mean i didn't start playing any kind of a rock uh style or, or type of music because i was still stuck with acoustic piano and unless you know you're elton john and you sing you know acoustic piano is like huh i don't know what to do with it it was all guitar and uh so i continued with the with jazz but the 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 rock and roll bug kept growing within me <laughs> there was a you know there was this alien thing that it made it inside and it was obviously gestating and growing and it, it took a while um, and it didn't really uh, emerge until i got here and i was faced with other people who obviously had the same idea where the where the jazz could pr- progress and actually continue existence because it was close to it was close to sort of uh, dying as far as you know typical jazz was concerned and i think the 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 life support came from sounding using sounds that that were usually associated with with rock which means distortion volume and uh and again guitars <laughs> mm. of course but at that point i was already hooked up with a electric piano playing through amplifiers playing through different devices to make it sound more exciting and uh i guess the first example of that would be uh like a really nice record that we made with uh, Jeremy Steig the flutist it was called energy and that was the time uh, we were recording the album with Eddie Kramer at uh, Electric Lady at Jimmy's studio and he dropped by a couple of times and <laughs> said hey <laughs> this is pretty cool and uh that we should you know keep in touch and you know try and see if we can do something and he had to get up and die on us mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just an amazing amazing tragedy yeah. horrible horrible thing that happened and uh but you know we we kept going and there were many other records that we made in in his studio you know f- feeling his spirit in, in the walls and in in the in the whole atmosphere 
of that place. So there was, uh, for instance, I did an album with Tommy Bolin that was done there. And then my uh, second uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra album was done mostly there too. So, you know, we, we, we kept that, uh, kept the legacy going. And uh, I just, I just flash back on when I saw you, saw your invitation for me to talk to you that you mentioned heavy metal bebop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just, I never heard it and I love it. I think it's probably the closest thing to how I approach for over the years, the, the, the combination of the rock packaging and, and I don't mean um, publicity or anything like that. I mean the, the musical, musical elements together with uh, fierce improvisation. And improvisation is something that is very special to me. And I think I would never ever become anything if I couldn't improvise. You know, and uh, unfortunately, improvisation is uh, sort of been frowned upon, you know, to a point where country stations even cut out guitar solos of pop, of pop country songs, which to me is astounding. <laughs> you know, you have so many, so many great musicians playing And then when the song comes on the radio, you don't even get to hear the, the wonderful guitar solos. Shame. <laughs> But that's, that's what I'm still there. And every time I do something, it'll have a very large dose of very spontaneous improvisation. Now, in, in terms of, um, I'm curious to know like what you were being exposed to, say, live. Like, did you ever see Hendrix live? I've never seen Jimmy live. I mean, play. I met him in person. Sure. But uh, no, I, I've seen videos and I've listened, you know, years and years of recordings and music, of his music. But uh, yeah, I, I missed it. I was, uh, I was still halfway, one, one foot in the jazz world. And I was also, at that time, traveling with Sarah Vaughan, the wonderful, wonderful singer, which, which, who gave me the first opening to the to the pros here, to the pro league, you know. So I was actually on the road with her. So whenever Jimmy was playing somewhere, it, 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 it wasn't, you know, possible. I, I, I would miss it. And, and still jazz was uh, very important. I didn't realize that I was totally slipping over to the other side, to the what became, you know, the heavy metal bebop. <laughs> um. In, in, in terms of like, what were some of the other things going on at that time where you felt that these things were sort of starting to, to, to creep together, these two kind of strains? Like, I know, I heard that you had played with Miles, I believe, sort of in a kind of a jamming context, like in New York. I was, yeah, I, I went to his house a couple of times to, to, re, re, to rehearse uh, in preparation for one of the upcoming albums that he did. I ended up not actually being... Uh, featured or no, not featured. <laughs> Didn't participate on the album. It, it was uh, Keith Jarrett returned, and he obviously had a seat reserved there. So you know, all all glory to him. Fantastic, fantastic musician. So he was the one who ended up playing on those records. But I still really uh, absorbed how Miles uh, projected what what he wanted to do. You know, and I was I was shocked. It was like we were. Rehearsing, that John John McLaughlin was there, uh, I think Steve Grossman, saxophonist, and we were playing some. I don't remember what the what this tune was. It was just something new, and Miles said, well, uh, "Make make the 
I want the, the beat, uh, the rhythm section, and, and to feel to be like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I said, holy mackerel. I mean, I, I get it because I, I would, I remember listening to Crosby, Stills, and Nash and really liking the, the flow and the groove, but I would never, as, as, you know, assume that it would be something that could be assimilated and used in a, in a Miles Davis world, you know, so that blew my mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, was that the first, really the first connection with John through, through that? Uh, I first met John when he was playing with the Tony Williams Lifetime and I was still in Boston at Berkeley College, and they they came and played for a week, so I was there like every night, and I hung out and sp- spoke to John, and nothing ever came of it. We, that, we didn't realize that we would end up, you know, a year later, actually a year and a half later, in a band together in in, uh, in Mahavishnu. And uh, so, I mean, I was very much aware of him, obviously also with the stuff that he did with Miles on, on records, and there was... That was the closest thing between Tony Williams's band and Miles, where we saw that the music was going to be heading, and we didn't realize that when we got together with uh, for the original Mahavishnu Orchestra, that it would explode like that, because we really put in a big bomb <laughs> with with much more of a rock and roll charge. You know, all the other things that I listened to were sort of semi. It was still quite jazzy, sort of. There was there was still sort of a tippy toe, you know, like you know, let's dip our toes into that. Well, Mahavishnu Orchestra jumped all the way in and exploded the big, the big bomb, which was it. It was a rock band. That was the thing that people, you know, didn't realize, and that was the reason for its success. It was a rock band that was capable of very sophisticated improvisation. And I think those those two things together made us what we what, you know what we became. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm curious to hear more about uh, Lifetime in particular because that uh, what I read about that band live, you know, obviously there's there's the one record that they made with their initial lineup, you know, with John and Larry Young. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious to hear more about since you saw them, you know, you said so many times, like what. Because that, that's obviously a very key band in all of this uh, lifetime. So, like, I'm curious to know, like, what, you know, what struck you about that group? It was, it, I think the word to, that comes to mind when I think of that band, the, the original band with Larry and John, uh, it, was, it was relentless, you know, compared to, you know, the things that they did with Miles. And Tony obviously wanted to take it to another level, and he definitely succeeded. And I was—I I had a gig at that time in Boston, just you know, keep bills covered. I played in the strip club, <laughs> all places. But the strip club was a—you know—it was me on organ and a drummer. Mm. <laughs> so guess what? I—I I learned a lot of the things of from Lifetime, and we started playing those things in the strip club. <laughs> and uh, people and kids from from Berkeley started showing up to hear us play. <laughs> it was, you wouldn't believe, the owner was slightly, you know, mafios are connected, and he wasn't happy that, you know, that he didn't have older guys who drink and, you know, watch women undress. Mm-hmm. These guys came, <laughs> didn't drink, and just went like, you know, ah, what are they playing, listen to that. So there was like a very, there was very big impact on me that I could actually, you know, absorbed it and, and went into the into organ, which, you know, I, I didn't do that much before. Mm. And uh, so, so yeah, that, that, that was Tony. <laughs> w- 
Well, did did you get at that time? Because I know you would work with, with you would work with him a lot later. Like at that time, did you get to speak to him about? You know, you spoke about this idea of like relentlessness and sort of maybe pushing it further than some of the mile stuff. Like, did you get to talk to him and get to hear about what were his uh, goals or sort of in, intent intent with that project? I don't. I didn't spend much time talking to, to, to Tony. T- Tony was still. Uh, to me, some somewhat of, of an enigma, you know. Even though he was my absolute bang-on number one favorite drummer, you know, and I, I, me being a drummer as well, I, you know, I, I, drew, I, I was drawing on his, on his, uh, sit whatever the system is, and the feeling of time that he had had that nobody ever had before him. He introduced a way of playing that, where the time was a little bit on top of where it should be, and it worked. You know, and it gave it this urgency. But again, he was much more of an enigmatic. You know, I spoke to John, and we, you know, it wasn't like nothing. And Larry, of course, and I met Tony, but it wasn't uh, until much later that that I really got to know him. When you know, when we did when we did things together a few years back, later later on. Mm. And and when you were playing, so 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 there's the Boston period, and then you and then you joined Sarah Vaughan's band, and then you eventually make it to New York. And now, in ter- and, and, and the Miles stuff is sort of going on in that period when you're mm-hmm. in New York. Um, what was, had Miles already done like Jack Johnson and things like that? Or what were the Miles records that were in the air? Yeah, the, I was, when, I, when I was still in Boston, just about to leave, uh, that was when uh, Bitches, I think Bitches Brew was made and, and Jack Johnson and the, you know, those things. So we heard all that. And, uh, you know, we, we were absorbing it but it really, what what it needed was, uh, I don't know how to how to explain it, but I think it's really the combination of the five people that when John said, oh, "Let's, we'll, this will be the band," you know, we I mean we met a couple of times, played Billy, John, and I uh, in, in our loft in my loft downtown, and he just you know he got excited and he said, "Let's let's go and do it," but once we started rehearsing. The thing was became so much more than some of the five parts. You know, it's a, it's I know it's a cliche. <laughs> they say it about a lot of bands, but it was probably more true about our band than I don't know of any any other band in that field. So, okay. So in terms of the development of it, was it did did John get together with Billy, and that was sort of the initial thing, and then they or how how did the whole thing? What was the progression of the different people coming in? Like, well, there was uh, as far as the band itself saying like this will be the band, you know, that comes at the very end. But uh, for instance, J- John had uh, I think Jerry played on on uh, John's uh, acoustic uh, my my goals beyond right right right. So there was Jerry was already somehow connected. But there was no talk yet of any band, <clears throat> and then I don't know who else who else uh, John was thinking as far as playing keyboards, because you know they came over him and Billy, and it was just you know wonderful. It just felt completely natural. So I thought I felt that you know I, I fit right in, and uh, the only question was uh, bass. And uh, I remember when we were playing. My my best friend and my bass player who used to play with with Saravon, Gene Perla, he was you know one of the one of the people that you know we lived in that loft. So he was playing bass, and it was like you know he was he could have joined the band at that point, 
but he was much more of a traditional he, he didn't want to take the step into the rock uh, cauldron <laughs> because it gets you know it's pretty hot in there and he was very happy working with Elvin Jones because I was playing with also at the same time with that I was playing with Sarah I was doing like weekend things off and on with Elvin Jones and Gene played the bass Gene, Gene played bass there and he really decided that he wanted to stay with that he, he just wasn't ready to go crazy and jump off the cliff uh, with us so then I remember I spoke to I spoke to Stanley Clark and he he again he was like he was not ready to do all electric bass which is what this our Mahavishnu would have to be there was just no way to have acoustic <laughs> acoustic bass and uh, for for some reason we all knew Rick Laird from different I knew Rick from Boston and uh, John knew Rick from England mm. and it was it, it just somehow graduated you know gravitated and he turned out to be uh, like a stroke of genius to put him in the fulcrum of the band like that because it's not just Billy Cobham you know obviously everybody knows the clockwork and and the, an amazing preci- precision that he plays with the, the, sometimes the music got so complex that bass really had to anchor it in, in a very unusual way and I think he was he saved us we, we would probably become much more chaotic band if we didn't have Rick so and Jerry forget it Jerry was like again if you want to go rock take Jerry with you <laughs> he was you know, he was the he was the wild card mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and obviously it worked because he was extremely capable you know the, instrumentally and all that he could handle anything but he also had that flash that just that that was necessary so you know between the five of us it was all there and just ignited mm-hmm. like i'm interested in this sort of like you know these kind of two worlds like it's kind of fascinating to think that you're playing with elvin who's obviously this master of kind of like a slightly earlier style that that wouldn't necessarily, you know, jump into this cauldron as you say that, that you know he he wouldn't necessarily become involved in this sort of jazz rock yeah. rock thing. And but then you have sort of Tony. I mean, I don't know what was it like, you know, playing with Elvin and then moving right into playing with like Billy Cobham in this other style. That must have been kind of an interesting like It was to me it was a like swimming from a one section of a lake to another section or in, in the ocean and you know wave comes and then another another wave comes and it's all fine you you just adjust and uh as i as i was talking about tony you know my absolute bang on f- favorite drummer uh elvin was number two <laughs> and i you know every single record with john coltrane and uh with wayne shorter and you know things like that i just worshipped his playing too because it was it was it's, it felt like tectonic plates were moving you know when you were next to him and uh, so it was a huge influence on me as far as rhythmic sense between Tony and, and, and Elvin, even though they are quite different, where Elvin is much more sort of a loping, lazier sort of feel to it. And, and Tony is like, you know, in your face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it still works. It still works great. So I, I didn't see any, I didn't have any problem jumping from one side to the other within, you know, one day to, to the next. And back, you know, I, I even, I even, uh, Sarah Vaughan's pianist got sick one and she was playing Rainbow Room on 30 Rock and she called me at the last minute. And I, I, there was like, I think like a year after I left and we were already, like Mahavishnu was already, you know, happening. 
So I had to rush, rush up, look at the book because I didn't remember all the arrangements. And I, I actually played uh, the Rainbow Room with her out of clear blue after all the electric stuff that I was into. But that was, it's good. You know, it keeps you sharp. Mm. And, and the Elvin thing, the, the record, uh, the On the Mountain album, now, is that from later or, or was that recorded around that? Th- that album actually happened after Mahavishnu. After Mahavishnu, okay. I already bought this farm here. Gotcha. With, with Gene and I bought it together. And uh, this building wasn't really here. There was just a barn. But as you came in, uh, there was a main, there's a main ho- house uh, was behind the cab. Mm. If you see that, there was like a big colonial. And that was the original studio on the ground floor. We just made it. And it was not all that professional, but the, it, the gear was professional. But it wasn't like, you know, like this, you know, stricked up, he, he says, pointing at the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was the, the very first recording th- that was done in the brand new Redgate studio, which we, you know, which we decided. That's why we moved out of the city, to, to, to be able to play and re- record, Gene and I. And uh, so the, the very first record with cal- cables, you know, just running across the floor, nothing was wired in. And... Uh, I just loved that album. It was just so different from El- for Elvin, you know. And there was, there was no saxophone. It was all just the uh, uh, Gene and bass and, and keyboard. But what made a little difference was also that I, I had a Minimoog, so I was able to actually take the place of a horn with my synthesizer. Did did that trio? Uh, did you do much live work with Elvin, either with that trio or with other stuff? Not with that trio. With Elvin, it was always at least one saxophone. Okay, if not two. Yeah, right. and I, I did go out on, on uh, I traveled with him a little bit uh, if, if, during Mahavishnu when there was time off and uh, even after I played played with him because, you know, just you cannot stay away from it. You know, the, 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 the feel of rhythm that he, that he surrounds you with is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, okay, so as far as those early... Like the early Mahavishnu, like the sort of rehearsal period in the loft that you're talking about. Where is that loft, by the way? This was on Crosby Street. Okay. So uh, like Soho. In Village. Actually, so I don't know if it was Soho it was, or if it was, it was north, north of Houston. North of Houston, okay. I yeah. think it was north of Houston, but I, I'm not 100% sure. It might have been south of Houston, so that's we, we, we can quibble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was in, in what is now all NYU land now. They, I got they, you. they own it a bit. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, but, but now, was... Were the were the tunes already there? Was John already bringing that stuff, or what were you guys actually playing on? There were, there was, I would say, rough line out uh, lineup of things to do. They were like, it, it, it's not really a sketch, but there were sort of there were pieces of music. Then we then through rehearsal expanded very much upon, and everybody very much contributed to the final forms and uh, you know. Uh, the final arrangements, and uh, it was we could tell that something big was happening, you know, because you you, you figure you hear like a idea for a composition, and you know you just play the melody, but then the arrangement grew and grew and grew, and it became almost symphonic, because when you when you, when you combine the way the the Jerry's violin and Rick's bass would combine, they were you know almost very much of a sym- symphonic counterpoint happening. And uh, then Billy came in from the left field and started playing uh, like across the beat sometimes. I don't know how to explain it, but it was never ever the original intention. The, all the tunes that we ended up 
performing and be, you know all the tunes that became famous never started the way that, that they ended there, there was major metamorphosis and uh it's it was just i don't know it, it wasn't scary but it was it was an eerie feeling of, of how is is this really happening you know we would just look around the room <laughs> and and say this is this is pretty good this is we we got to go with this mm. Yeah, because it seems like, as you're saying, there's not really anything you can point to and say, here's another here's another band, let's try and do that. It's kind of like you're taking these steps into something that wasn't really done. Yeah, we were basically in, inventing the whole genre as we went along. And it's, it's, it's later, it's, there, there was this jazz rock name, and then there is fusion, which I could definitely do without. It's like a horrible word. <laughs> you know, it's, it just really sounds utilitarian and dismissive. Uh, but I, I really like heavy metal bebop <laughs> because that's very much what we were doing. Well, yeah, and that, that's sort of all credit because that, that it, the, the, the thing, I got it from the Brecker Brothers album, the, the title of that, the, the, yeah. they have an album called that. Yeah, but oh, I, mean, I didn't I, know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, and that album is not necessarily in that vein. That's almost more like a funky thing, but I sort yeah. of just, you know, grabbed it because it, it seemed to be... No, no, I love it. It I seemed it. to be apt for, uh, for the whole thing. But like, now, in those rehearsals, were you, I mean, I'm, okay, so were you already playing at this insane volume at, like... Yeah, we started, I don't know if we started uh, carefully or if we just sort of tiptoed into it, but it didn't take long before, you know, the building was shaking. <laughs> no, there, was, there was like a Richter scale component to our playing. And uh, there was, you know, it was good build, good building because it was sort of isolated. There wasn't much, you know, it was like warehouses, you know, the old, old Soho Crosby Street. Yeah. And that was that was good. So we could, you know, we could just really let go. What happened was when once we 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 went to record, it became a problem. And I think that's the reason why our first album. I'm as much as professional attention went into trying to record us. It was impossible because we were, you know, we were all playing through amps on seventeen, and uh, there is no way that you can make it sound big on the record when you play that loud in the studio. The whole secret to, like if you think, like for instance Metallica, how huge the, the sound is. I'm sure that they don't play a total deafening volume in the studio. Right, right. And it's, it's the recording process itself makes it uh, very, the fidelity of it makes it big. And I remember when I first heard Metallica, I, I kept thinking, boy, I wish our first album sounded like that with our playing, because that would that would really be something. Mm. But it, you know, we, we didn't know. It it got better on the second album because the engineer was Ken Scott, who was the Beatles engineer, and that that's why you know I think he was able to uh, tame the insanity and bring make it sound a little bigger than you know than otherwise with, with with the overload that we would have all the time mm -hmm. and uh and also the the, the live album also sounds good because it's, there's much more space for the explosions to dissipate <laughs> and anyway we and we went crazy loud and after while we were recording we also had two weeks at the a go-go 
Whiskey, Whiskey A Go Go on Bleecker Street. That was our first gig. And I remember people were like peeling themselves off the wall. <laughs> and also when we, we played, I think the first tune and we, we finished, it sounds like a, you know, exaggeration, but they were stunned. People were stunned and they didn't clap for quite a while. It was just, what, what are we supposed to do now? <laughs> oh, what did, did we just hear this? And then they went crazy and there was like, you know, an, an enormous applause. But there, the, there was like a definite stunt, pregnant minute or two, <laughs> and uh, it, it definitely we, we we were playing at the top of, you know, r- top r- turbo revs. <laughs> do, do you remember what that first tune was at that? I'm sure it was Meeting of the Spirits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we basically that became the opening tune for a long time. Mm-hmm. So is that is that piece kind of like the the big bang of the band? Like is that is that the one? Yeah, pretty much. There's all the elements. If you want to know what the band is about and how it how it uh, hits, how it becomes so becomes so big and, and so symphonic, all the elements are in that tune, you know. And uh, and also you get all kinds of improvisation, but the, the layers and the counterpoint, all that stuff, just evolved to, to you know there was there was stunning coming from a you know rock band that sounds like a rock band and in the meantime the, the sophistication of it you know combined with the with the raucousness and uh, I think the pe- people were quite stunned but it was good it was <laughs> it was good and we, we, we stayed there for two weeks while we were finishing uh, the first album so j- j- just from a, a like because I'm a musician as well I play drums and like sort of heavy metal type bands and like yeah. I, I like I'm curious like were you wearing were you all wearing earplugs like what is the like like how are you even dealing with this like, I you know I don't think earplugs were invented then <laughs> it was like no, nobody ever considered you know that's why we sometimes some of, some of us suffer I mean I I I I have lost some of high frequencies and you have people like Jeff had had like problems with tinnitus and and uh, Pete Townsend too, you know, very very unhappy with his hearing. If I'm if I, I'm if I'm getting my information correctly, but I think that's what I heard. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, we were not not prepared for that. We just you know let it go. But you were already playing like gig volume at the at the loft. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, just, it's incredible to think about and it. And also, the whis- whiskey or go-go is a very small, narrow room. Yeah, you know, it's not like at a, at a concert hall you can sort of get away with it because there's you know little escape velocity that we can you know you can let the stuff fly around the room. But here it was just pressure cooker. Yeah. Do you think that? And, and I know that obviously John had been playing, uh, you know very loudly with with lifetime and things yeah. like that but was this was this basically new for a lot of the members of the band to be to be in such an aggressive uh kind of overwhelming context like did it feel like like oh i've you know this this is just the jazz stuff was just nowhere near this yeah i think i was probably rick rick and myself were probably the people who were least prepared for it and uh we just let, had to let it let it be because you know it it really worked. I mean, John was playing you know balls out, super loud you know forever. Jerry coming from the flock, which was you know a, a legit rock, rock band, and Billy. I don't know. Billy sometimes wasn't happy with with the extreme 
but he also always had the mon- his monitor set up and he, he didn't have John's amp facing him in any way <laughs> because there that was always the loudest thing on the stage and uh I, somehow we managed to work within that madness you know we sort of tamed it for us to be able to to work through it in, in terms of this, I'm curious about, you know, this this idea, you know, you had said people kind of had to peel themselves off the wall, which listening to the listening to the recordings and the live footage, it's, it, it makes complete sense what you're saying. Like, was that, um, was it intentional to kind of want to really overwhelm people and, and, and to have it be, you know, almost this aggressive thing that, that somebody had to, I don't know, I'm trying to think how to say that. Um, to, to really overwhelm people in the way that a, a top volume rock band would? Was that really the intent? To- I don't think there was an intent as much as assumption. That that's how it sounds. If you think about it, like right around, you know, a year before or so, Cream was probably one of the, you know, the loudest thing that people ever heard. And uh, and all, a whole bunch of other bands, they, they just came on stage and whammo. That's, that's what it was. And we assumed that that's what we do because we are a rock band. We were no, you know, that was the break. We made the clean break from being a rock band, which is sensible and, you know, sensitive. And no, we, we, we may be sensitive, but we are loud. I, I'm very interested in that, though, that this, this, this break, like, was that, was that actually discussed within the band? This, this idea of like, we are, we are, we are moving somewhere beyond, you know, our jazz backgrounds. We're taking, we, we want to be. Moving it was out an, of that. It was not discussed as, as such, as, okay. as, as a strategy. It was, it was partially mutual assured, mutually assured destruction <laughs> where I turn up, you, oh, he turned up, oh, I'll turn up. And, you know, we just kept turning up and, and gradually over the days and days of, uh, and weeks of rehearsing, we ended up at that spot mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. liked it mm-hmm. because it it's just worked for what we were trying to do, what, what, you know, the gigantic fireball that the band became. Well, and and it seems like, and I don't know if it was, you know, obviously it was a combination of the, you know, the the, you know, extreme quality of the music itself, the high caliber, the improvisation, you know, the 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 volume and the and the sort of power of it, but all that seems to have led to this band being able to kind of, I want to say, like escape the gravity of 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 jazz or something in the sense that you were, you know, essentially becoming almost an arena band or something. Absolutely. We right. are, and we ended up playing arenas. That, right. Because that was the only proper environment. And I have, I have one, there was a drawback though, that some of the more complex playing uh, would sometimes get muddled and, and uh, lost. See, there was so much more, I, I, I felt... I, again, same thing. I feel like if we could back it off 10%, the, the, the crazy volume, the, the articulation of, all the, of the music would be much better and much easier understood. And I think the, that was a pity. But at the same time, who knows? Maybe the impact wouldn't be the same and we wouldn't become as, you know, such a s- smash, I guess. <laughs> what, what are... Um Okay, so there's this this uh, whiskey thing you're talking about, which is which is the kind of small club thing surrounding the recording of the first record. Mm-hmm. Like when, um, and I know there were some college shows and things. Right like after that, that we, we started do, doing. You know, we played the, a couple of two college tours. But, but they were like, but I think the other bands were Birds and Blue Oyster Cult. I remember those two, and uh, 
I, I yeah, I, I, I'm not totally clear, but it just became a thing, and we were out there playing so often and so continuously that we had to actually book a break so we could make a next next album. We were we were booked like wall to wall, and uh, it was pretty pretty strange for me. I've, I've never experienced anything like it. I don't know what the other people did, but I don't think so. It was, you know, it, it was, and they just had us working like, you know, mules. Mm-hmm. What was, um, okay, so, so, so at that point, you're basically in front of, I imagine at the whiskey, it was, it was more of a jazz audience, people who knew these players from other, maybe mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Miles and things like that. They didn't know what to expect. Right. <laughs> but but when you went out into these other gigs where you're playing with you know Blue Oyster Cold and I know that you know all kinds of things would follow I know that there was like you played with Aerosmith and things like that like how how are these rock audiences Aerosmith was opening for us ah okay 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 <laughs> <laughs> then, we, then we played yeah but initially Aerosmith just started and it was uh, it was amazing I, I remember the guy showed up uh, and I I've, I've never seen like coming from jazz world. And I never saw guys with makeup. <laughs> I said, "Yeah, what, what's happening?" <laughs> it was great. It was great. And uh, so that was the that was the one first the first encounter with Aerosmith. But we played. There was yes was on some some gigs, and I think the the breakthrough that really made a whole lot a whole lot of difference was the the West Coast tour, uh, where we played uh, we opened for Emerson Lake Lake and Palmer, and there was much more of a receptive audience because they already heard you know instrumental virtuosity and and playing loud you know they were loud too so they were open to what you know what was coming and uh the, the result of the few of those dates was that uh the band emerson lake and palmer those and then the management it's a never book us with mahavishnu orchestra again it, it's it seems like uh, and you know I I should cite a, a key source is Walter Koloski's book on the band which has a lot of really great testimonials. No, I know Walter. Yeah, yeah right. Sure. Um, but but there it, it seems like time and again the band had that effect on people. You would you would be the opening band and you would kind of blow people off the stage. Was yeah. that was that happening? It, it was it was no in, not intention. We were like very fair, but unfortunately we made, we made most of them run. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's interesting you're talking about um, you're talking about yes and ELP and things like that because it seems like at this time where all the styles are kind of getting blurred like maybe it would have made more sense for you to be playing with these bands that people would call you know these quote unquote prog things prog things yeah which and again this is kind of where the terminology fails because it's like it, it absolutely makes perfect sense that you would be playing mm-hmm. with ELP. The only problem for me, for my ears and for my sensibility is that I found that, again, whatever ended up being called prog rock was little too precious and twee. Mm-hmm. And we weren't certainly not precious. Sure. <laughs> so that this is where, again, we would sort of wear off and say, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, the, all those guys are great musicians, talented, but the style of the, you know, how, how it was put together, like a this, you know, cute little Swiss clock, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, we were we were like a turbo Formula One car. Well, well, I'm curious. That sort of brings up the question of like, who at the time did you feel a kinship with musically? Like, 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 were there other bands or artists that, that you either heard 
that you were playing with or that you heard on record that you were like, oh yeah, this, these are kind of kindred spirits moving into this realm with I us? I hate to sound uh, hoity-toity, but I, I think we were pretty much an island. I don't think that, you know, there were bands that played rock, jazz, jazz rock, fusion, prog. The closest we, I remember, it may be bizarre, but we played a wonderful outdoor concert at Syracuse University on this big side of the hill. And the uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra and the opening was Ravi Shankar. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I felt such kinship because, again, improvisation, and I mean, on his level, oh my God. And uh, there was just such an inspiration that, you know, we, are, we were on the right track, even though we were like loud as hell. And, uh, but, you know, if you, know when I, if you can imagine the, the two, two, two musical phenomenons, you know, on, this, on the same bill like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it makes complete sense. That was, that was yeah. just fantastic. Mm-hmm. What, what about, um, you know, for example, just to throw out a name, like something like King Crimson, like, like were these things on the radar? Were you tuning into things like that? Well, I think Crimson was a little bit before, it happened before us, mm. and I missed it altogether. I was, because I was much more into Jimmy. Gotcha. As far as the, the relentless playing, you know what I mean? Just burning, playing, you know, playing his ass off, just, you know, aban- total abandon. I never felt that from any of the other prog bands. They were, you know, it was nicely constructed and prepared, and, but I, I, I didn't hear any instrumental abandon like with Jimmy. And I think there was, for me, that was always the ideal. Mm. If I want to, you know, and, and Miles, between Miles and Jimmy, you got me covered. Those, sure. those, those, two, those two sources are like, Prime. So, you, so, so Miles, Jimmy, you mentioned Train as well. Oh God, Train! Yeah. Sorry, yeah, right, 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 yeah, yeah. And then Elvin, Tony. So it's kind of the, it's kind it of still the, comes from jazz because yeah. of the improvisation, mm. but it's put into a hundred percent rock milieu and rock instrumentation mm. and sound. Mm. Um, did did you feel like you were um, you were winning over people from? You know, pe- people who would come to these rock gigs and like they would see you. Did you feel like you were kind of creating new new converts to just like opening people's mind to some new? Well, I think there was always big big crowds for something that I would call a proto speed metal, that be, that really flowered later, way way longer after we disappeared. But it was something that I think we somehow stepped on something that it, again, <laughs> and it went off, and it, it turned into a, a speed metal. Mm. Even mm. though speed metal is again. Uh, not as wasn't isn't as sophisticated as what we were doing, but it's still loud, fast, and uh, technically demanding. And uh, I think those those audiences were out there; they just didn't know it. And I think those were the people who really went for us in a big way. The, the people who later would have been heavy metal speed, fans, uh, heavy and speed, especially speed, speed metal, metal subcategory, right. yeah. right, right, right. Now, now, so I mean, this is obviously jumping around in time a lot, but you did mention Metallica before, and I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. I sort of can't help but ask you about your, you know, your exposure and your history with, with, with metal, all different styles. Like, were you, it sounds like you were paying attention to this stuff as, it, as it came out later. Yeah. What, tell me about some of the different things that you heard when you heard them. What struck you as being particularly well, Eddie Van Halen, obviously. Sure, you have to like tip your hat. Loved the guy. Got to play with him. Uh, a couple of times, different. Uh, 
Let me help me. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you you <clears throat> mentioned, I mean, in terms of the speed metal, and you mentioned Metallica. Like, like you know, w- where did that stuff come on your radar? I just think the 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 incredible heaviness of the sound. You know, it, the songs very simple, very effective, and uh, but I, I'm just talking really more about the the recording and production. Mm. And I always wished that our first album could have been recorded in that way where we would preserve the the wideness and the tremendous weight of those of those guitar sounds or the whole I mean bass all of it where it our first album unfortunately ended up being a little bit too tinny you you had to hear us live to actually get the point of what we're trying to do i don't think the first record did it justice yeah, it does seem like, and especially too with like Cobham using the the double kick drum, which which obviously would become such an important feature of of metal, right? Exactly. And things like that, like like, and people really figured out how to produce it in a certain way. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It is. It is kind of uh, tantalizing to think about what Ma Vishnu would sound like with like you know like '90s production or something. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's it. Right. That's it. You got it. Right. Um, well, what can you say about, um, I mean, yeah, there's so many sort of like directions that we could go in, but like, since you just brought him up, like, tell me about the, tell me about the Van Halen thing. Um, cause I, I know I, I have seen that video where it's you and him and I can't remember who else. It's kind of like an all-star jam. That- it was, this was, uh, uh, Jesus, guitar player, uh, inventor, Les. Oh, Les Paul. Yeah, that's right. Les, there was a Les Paul yeah, tribute yeah. Right, uh, right. On, uh, on HBO that we and there was lots of there was uh, there was lots of people. The BB King. Uh, uh, it was just wonderful, wonderful evening, and I got to play with all of them, even though I, I played a keyboard. And it was it was like you know, okay, you want to do a tribute to a guitar? I'm going to be part of it. Yeah, and uh, uh, wait a minute, I mean, I'm drawing a blank again. <laughs> well, had you had you been had you been were you very familiar with Eddie at that time? Oh, of course. I mean, at that point, everybody was. Right. You know, there was that was he was you know his his thing was so big, mm. and uh, I loved a lot of the things that he did, and uh, you know the whole again, and the sound, you know the the recording. It was like another example of how wide open the the drums and the guitar and huge they sound. We we just never managed to. And get it on the. Uh, I keep harping on the first record, but the second record sounds much better. <laughs> so, so you you prefer Birds of Fire? As far, yeah, as far as sound music, the music I love both equally. There was you know, it was all uh, breakthrough. But I just wished you know, being an engineer and have, since then, hanging having spent so much time with Ken, sitting next to Ken Scott when he when he does his magic, I picked up whatever tricks that I then used in my production. And I, I see what we could have done, basically, by backing off 10% in the studio, in the live room, and making up for it with technology. Mm. And making it, you know, making it as big as it really wants to be. So I, I'm, I, but I'm not gonna, I'm gonna have to stop bitching about it because the music is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it got us there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we, and, and, you know, obviously the, the, the Trident sessions and the, and the, what was really cool is when they put out the, uh, the additional live stuff from the, from the Central Park concert where you can now have the entire mm-hmm, concert. Mm-hmm. I, I, to me, that's, that's one of the best documents too, that, that whole concert. And also the, the, the lost Trident tapes. Exactly. When we were doing, we, there was a, we were attempting to do a third album 
and we were like, you know, not getting along. Yeah. So this was the beginning of the rumbles of the end. So then we said, like, let the hell with it, let's just do a live album. And we gave up on the studio album, but the studio album, there was tapes, they were killer. So that that's what's on the uh, Lost Trident sessions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which are, yeah, which are just as high quality. Yeah. And them. also with the best, you know, there was a the recording, Ken, Ken Scott. Mm. So, mm. um, you know, I know the end of the band has been, it's, it's been discussed so many times and I, I don't necessarily want to get too into the nitty gritty of it, but I mean, like, I guess I'm curious, like given how positively you're speaking about the whole thing and it seems of how proud you are of oh, it, yeah. like, did you did you feel a lot of sense of like unfinished business of like where that could have gone? Was there a sense of of you know great disappointment of of there was more to do with my vision? Yes, I would definitely prefer for the band to stay together and uh, open up the appreciation of all the members in the band as far as equal participant, mm. which never happened, and uh, so that's that was the death. Yeah, that was just unfortunate. We, uh, I hate talking about it because it's it always says, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Jan hates John. I love John. John was one of the most important people I ever met in music, and he, you know, he lifted me up, and uh, so I have nothing bad to say about him. Mm. But the band could have gone for another year, and done fantastic things mm-hmm. if you know heads were. In the right place in certain people <laughs> what makes you say another year like like wh- like did you feel that after that people would have just gone off and kind of become their own band leaders or what was well it happened anyway right but th- there was there was so much dynamite material to be had out of that five some you know the, the five people could have produced something astounding for we had like I'm, I, I'm just guessing like a year maybe an album or two right yeah, and as you were saying, even with the early stuff, when somebody would bring in an idea, it would become completely transformed by just the what the band could do. Yeah, as and I, I, oh, I totally like uh, appreciate the fact that it was mostly John who brought all the, all, you know, put the all, the all the initial tunes and ideas together. But boy, <laughs> they did get transformed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It like did it did it you know and, and this is this is again something too that 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 I you know I've read different people talking about but did it ever get close in the years after to any kind of reunion like like was there ever a moment where you thought it might get like start happening again or? yeah I not with me yeah I was probably the the hardest holdout uh, but there were times where somebody was you know waving lots of money. You know, especially in the first ten or fifteen years since the band split up, and even then, I was already in in another planet with working on Miami Vice, and I was doing just fine, and I didn't see like how I would you know drop that and start rehearsing. To me, re- <laughs> rehearsing became an anathema. I just couldn't. I never. I I after you know a certain age, you don't want to go through that again sure and i also became a complete uh studio uh not studio rat but you know i basically lived in and i built that's why i built this and uh i i found that i could i started working more as a filmmaker as opposed to theatrical theatrical person you know what i mean doing like a live sure. thing every day absolutely in, in in a studio you actually perfect things 
and you can put all kinds of things together, see how they work, and then forget about it and do go back. So it became much more of a filmmaking type uh, attitude for me. And I just couldn't see trying to rehearse again. And the other thing is, the relentlessness of that music really requires youthful people, younger people. Mm-hmm. I felt that I wasn't, I didn't have the young and, and, and the enthusiasm that you have to have. It somehow went away and it's not to be recovered. I don't think so. Did you, um, did you over the years, was there other music that you saw or that you heard where you, where you heard the same spark, like, like where it was like you heard it like a younger band or something, you either saw a gig or heard a record and you were like, that's, they're, they're picking up where we left off or they're, they're moving, you know, they're, they're picking up the torch from Mahavishnu. I think I, I really, the more I think about it, uh, it seems to me that it was a one-time thing. The right thing at the right time, and all the elements were there, and uh, the, the the audience was, you know, dying for something new, and jazz was also starving of oxygen, and this gave it a big shot in the arm. And I don't know if, uh, you know, th- th- it's possible, but I don't, I cannot recall anything quite like that. Mm. Yeah, because it's interesting because, and you, and you had, you had expressed um, sort of a distaste with, with this, the term fusion and this concept. And like, it seems like, it seems to me like, and you can, I, w- I want to hear what you think about this. Like you have these initial bands, you know, you have Lifetime, then you have Mahavishnu, and then sort of this fusion thing becomes you know, quote unquote, a term and it becomes more codified and then and it kind of progresses over the years and maybe becomes more and more kind of polite. Like, and I, I guess to me... It became a commodity. Right. And, and like, like, I don't know, it just seems like in the early stages of it when it's kind of more unruly and, and, and you know, as you said, I think you used all kinds of words like raucous and things like that. There's kind of this, you know, for lack of a better word, like punk quality to it or just very... It's, except punk lacks... The musical skills, right? Whatever the, the attitude is, great. Yes, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, basically, it all for me it takes me back to Jimmy, but uh, or uh, one more person I have to mention, Tommy Bolin. And it's the abandon that you bring to an instrument and to improvisation, and playing with that abandon and keeping it still in control. You know, what I mean, not letting it get away from you. That's something that uh, doesn't happen very often in life. And I, it brings me back to Jimmy always. Well, you're right, because okay, so those are sort of the two ingredients of it: the virtuosity plus the abandon. Which, like you know, the virtu- virtuosity on its own is already like you know an elite thing that very few people can get to that level on an instrument. And then to be able to kind of like let go, like in a, a you know, that's kind of what we think of with Coltrane, right? Oh yeah, you know, kind of like you know, the, the, he he like mastered the saxophone, and then he figured out how to kind of just like take it into this other kind of spiritual place or something. You know, I don't know. I'm just kind of. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I agree. I'm, I'm yeah. just trying to think. Uh, the, the, the only thing with with Coltrane, as amazing as it is, it takes uh, somebody with you know, I don't know, you and I who have jazz, who have a jazz sensibility who can actually go into the jazzness of it. Uh, whereas Jimi Hendrix took it to the to the rock milieu and that's that's why it became so much bigger mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's basically you know it's part of the same coin um 
You, you brought up Tommy Bowen a couple times. I think he's uh, an underrated musician. I know he died young, and he was. Uh, on, we were on a tour together. Oh, is that right? He was. He was opening for Jeff. Jeff and my Jeff and myself. Okay. And we were in Miami, and he after the concert, basically he didn't show up to the next. You know, we were told he's gone. Mm-hmm. He had a you know drug problem. Mm-hmm. But but you so so at that time you you were not playing you were not playing with him on with, the tour. No, no, he was with his band opening his band. for for Jeff and I. But but you did play on one of his records. Couple or, of, couple yeah, of his records. Yeah, I actually played drums on one of his records. Oh, okay, is that the teaser or? I think yeah, I think it's teaser. Okay, and there was a there was a time where uh, Michael Walden, not a Michael Walden, yep. was going to be playing drums and everything was set up, and he got stuck in the I guess in Holland Tunnel or something. I couldn't get a studio is all buzzing, ready to go. So I said, "Come on, let's do it." I, I'll play drums. So I ended up play, I ended up playing drums on that one tune. Did, did you have a lot of experience playing drums in like a sort of a rock context? I made it my business. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I didn't have much live experience, but in the studio, mo- mostly, and I played drums on all all my things on most of the. A lot of the Jan Hammer group later, the, uh, I, it's Tony Smith plays most of the drums, but there's songs, especially on some of the pop songs, I, I played the drums. And uh, but I I played. Uh, oh, I'm looking somewhere else. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> Hello, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, no, I was uh, probably as a kid, I was more obsessed with drums than with piano. A piano was something that I was supposed to do, but I had like a really junky collection of like uh, stray cat type drums. Uh, that I that I would play, and I would play along with Count Basie, and I play along with Miles Davis, you know, and just the, probably my favorite was uh, playing along with Love Supreme, <laughs> just with Elvin, and uh, so I mean I was obsessed with drums, not in a way that I was never that obsessed with piano. Piano was you know I was told to do, I was taught, and I became good enough to to you know support myself <laughs> but drums always my heart just like you know goes after drums so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and were you uh did you feel that way about about the rock drummers that were coming along too like like were you following you know when like let's say you know john bonham and all this stuff that was coming oh yeah the, john bonham uh, definitely uh i i have to admit ringo star yeah very much loved you know the sensibility the fills, the the timing, the you know, the the feel of structure. People don't realize that, and it's just. I had I had the chance to do work with Ringo when I did a video for one of my tunes. I saw that, yeah. And and uh, I mean, he doesn't play on the tune. I play I I play drums on it, but uh, it was so nice that he agreed to come and you know act in the video. So and he's wonderful. Wonderful guy, really fun. What was the what was the connection, or like how did that come about that he was involved in? It, it was uh, I don't know why, how he ended up. It was well. First of all, we got Jeff to do the, and once Jeff gets involved, you know, other guys say, "Well, if Jeff is in it, we'll come over too." And uh, uh, David Gilmore, David in Gilmore it. played yeah. too. Yeah, right. and uh, so yeah, that that was that was just a nice goof off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, because they keep kind of replacing you. In yeah, the video. I, I, yeah, because I'm like, you know, Mr. Mr. One Man Band. Yes, and I try, exactly. I'm going to play everything, and Ringo comes in and says, hey, get away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, where were we? Well, but, uh, well but I think we got off 
uh, I, I was curious about drummers. You, well, that, but then before that, I wanted to hear a little bit about your thoughts about Tommy Boland because, again, I, I, I just don't think a lot of people. I, I think he's kind of under recognized as a, as a player because he, he's also on the on the Cobham record. Right. That's that's uh, he. We did a we did a. Uh, Demo with again, there, but there we go back to Jeremy Steig, my old friend, the flutist. And we did a d- demo of some new tunes of my tune, and a couple of and Billy, Billy, uh, Cobham played drums. And Jeremy brought the to, Tim, uh, Tommy, Tommy Bolin, yeah. Tommy Bolin, yeah. And I never heard of him. And I just showed him, you know, my tune. I said, Let's, let's play this tune, and there you take a solo here. And he, like, in a millisecond he knew exactly what i wanted to hear there it was i could not believe how instinctive he was you know and uh so then the next natural thing billy billy just loved him so when billy was putting together his his album which was uh two parts it was small group and a large group so the small group was uh lee sklar on bass and myself and tommy and uh billy and we played all these things the only thing that sort of rubbed me the wrong way was was some of the reviewers started writing, you know, raving about one solo. So there's a great guitar solo there. I said, I said that's me, guys. That's me. I'm playing. It's a Minimoog. It's a synthesizer. <laughs> so I, since then, I started putting on my albums, like, for those concerned, there is no guitar <laughs> on this album. So, you know, so you don't get confused. Did, did, that, um, did that happen to you a lot, that people would mistake the... Spe- the, the the worst example was the one the Billy Cobham Spectrum mm. because there was t- Tommy playing his ass off and then I was playing you know my thing and we were in a way so- sort of similar and I was very much getting into closer and closer to the guitar world as far as where I lived with my melodic and sound approach but it's still I don't know how they can confuse it because you know it's a it's still a synthesizer but people just assume that nobody on a keyboard could do that. So they just immediately lump it together with, but hey, give him more credit. The guy deserves it. He's like, phenomenon. Was this that, um, is this the first tune on Spectrum? The, the I, I always- Quadrant fr- four. Right, exactly, yeah, which is a very, you know. So the whole opening section is just me and Billy. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. And they would say, oh, like, listen, Tommy Boland really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 that's funny. Um, but but that okay so so that's another thing I wanted to talk about just this kind of like um, kind of shared shared language and exchange sort of between like the keyboard and the guitar and then how the technology was kind of helping things along in that regard like um, could could you talk a little bit about you know being a okay because because when we first started you talk about being a pianist and a keyboard player who didn't really feel like there was a place in rock but then the technology sort of starts to allow that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like wh- where where was, um, wh- is it the mini Moog that's kind of the... Well, that was the biggest breakthrough. Okay. That, that was That became uh, a, like a major breaking point where I actually found specifically my exclusive voice that nobody else could touch. I, I was trying before with, with different processing uh, circuitry on, on like on a Fender electric piano. I would put it through pitch benders and pitch pitch changers and... Uh, pitch shifters and things like that and, and ring modulators just to be able to to bend the note so the note wouldn't just sit there like you know forever it's hard, it's hard to explain but if you if you're singing obviously your voice can glide and if you play violin guitar everything is bending 
piano is nailed to the, you know, you're nailed to the board. And all of a sudden, I got my hands on the Minimoog with the, sp- with the pitch wheel. And it was, you know, eureka. It was major, major breakthrough where I could actually shape the melody the way I heard it in my head for the first time. When and where was that that you first got to play This it? was, uh, I think it was like May 1972. We were, and I, I spent about a month or two, you know, at home with it, figuring out how to use it, what to do with it, and then I just took it on stage, and I never, you know, I, I never stopped playing it. So it was like in the middle of the lifespan of Mahavishnu. Ma like you- it, definitely, it was right in the middle of, uh, of you know big tours. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of days we come to New York. I, I go to Manny's music store on 48th Street. I say, hey, I want this. <laughs> so uh, so they knew me there. It was like very nice. I said, yeah, let's go. I took it, you know, in a suitcase. Took it to my apartment. Put headphones on, and I mean, it was really an ecstatic sort of feeling because I said, Jesus, I, I have no idea that I could do this. And uh, the, the rest is whatever history. So, so you had not uh, you had not seen or heard other musicians playing that instrument. I've heard Moog on, on on records, you know, switched on Bach, okay, uh, Abbey Road, you know, the, the, but those were like just dedicated modular things, and uh, not really. I, the, the, it was just, and I I couldn't relate to the. Uh, clinical approach to it, you know, which was like a, you're in a lab yeah. and you, you patch different things together. Yeah. Minimum was like, this is the one, actually, <laughs> right here in the corner. That's one of the two that I that I got from Avishnu. And uh, it's pre-patched, but all the controls flow together very logically. So there is not, not a, the learning curve is very, very short. I mean, that doesn't mean that anybody can just, you know, Pick it up, pick it up. But uh, that's, the, the, I don't know, it's, that was the breakthrough, basically, that, you know, gave me my voice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, and then where, where along the lines does, like, the guitar come in? Like, 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 wh- when is, when is, was that another breakthrough? Well, guitar, guitar, there's, there's one of the, the best ones is over there. But guitar is a portable strap on hopefully lightweight <laughs> mm. I, I started with heavy ones and then this one is like fiberglass and very lightweight this one is from 1977 vintage and uh it's it's not really the sound the guitar is more the expression and it's for performance where you can actually stand out there and be like in, on a, in a equal in the front line with like with the guitar and the bass and you can all just dig into it and it makes you play a little bit differently, but the, the sounds you hear are uh, regular, I mean, any, any synthesizer. It can be patched in and play Minimoog or Oberheim or any, you know, synthesizer like that. So it's more performance it's innovation. Really, it's really yeah. a performance thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when was the first time that you that you were able to perform with, with the guitar and, like, be in the front line, so to speak? That was in, with my band, mm-hmm. uh, like, around 19... 19- the year would be 1976, and uh, it was uh, my great dear friend, uh, technician Andy Topeka, legendary Andy Topeka. Everybody knows him. Who knows anything? <laughs> he helped me put together. We basically gutted a Minimoog and put it into a box of plywood, you know, 
it was pretty heavy and with the left hand controller and I was able to then play the Minimoog away from the desk mm, you mm. know I was I was like out in the field what what did that what did that feel like after all those years of sitting it was exactly what I thought it would be and uh, it got better and better with you know subsequent uh, models which the the, the the first one I had was just monophonic like Minimoog you, you could only play one note at a time eventually it you know it the technology caught up and uh yeah no it was it was something that fulfilled my dream where i could eventually play any sound polyphonically and not be tied to sitting down i mean it which makes for much more uh, interesting performance i don't know you know if if interesting is the right word but if you if you see somebody like on stage and he's just sitting there and just barely moving hands it's totally different than if you have somebody who is on on right on front of a stage playing at you and you know what you know you get this this uh, direct it the communication of the of the music becomes more direct it may sound naive but it works had you felt like let's say in ma vishnu had you felt constrained by having to sit and like well, and with Mahavishnu, there was really not not a, an option. There was no guitar or portable keyboard sure. available. And uh, 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 I should mention one more thing: there was uh, there was some uh, slight I don't know how how slight, but there was some amount of friction when my sound was getting more and more guitar-like. And John m- did mention a couple times something like, oh, "Maybe this is like a little too close," and he he, he, he didn't felt didn't feel. Basically, I was basically stepping on his turf, you know, and we did nothing came of it. But you know, there was a message sent, right, right, and, and but I couldn't help it. It was just something that I was. It was a natural progression from using the pure synthesizer oscillator sound, which is kind of clinical, to putting it through an amp and processing it. Obviously, at that point, it'll eventually get a, get more and more guitar-like in in the timbre and tone. Did you feel like you were modeling? You 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 were wanting it to get more guitar-like. Were you kind of modeling the? Tone it was of- it, it was inevitable because in case you want to play burning, uh, fascinating guitars. I mean guitar-like solo because that's usually the best part of of rock and roll to me. Uh, vocals are nice. You know you can have them. Give me the guitar solo. Give me uh, give me what Angus Young. <laughs> you know. That's I, I, if I listen to ACDC, I can't wait for the guitar solo. You know, as much as you know, it's great, great songs, great songs. Yeah, guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's there's something. It's an imperative to have an aggressive sound, and uh, it ends up getting close to guitar. To my ears, it wasn't, but to some people, obviously, got confusing. Mm. But uh, it paid off for me because I was able to break through. Um, w- w- were ACDC like a particular favorite of yours? Were you were you like seeking them out and getting really into the, the guitar solos? Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's very simple. Yeah, I, I mean the grooves. The grooves were you know phenomenal. Yeah, I mean I there's you you could name all these different bands and I tell you I love this and you know, but it, it wasn't that I really. Seeked, seeks, was seeking them out or or looking at a at an influence. I was just the energy itself was how to capture that. You know that was pretty much 
at the forefront of my mind when I listen to any of this. The overall impact, how the music is big, and, and the the production, how it's, you know, how it envelops you. So that that uh, like of heavy metal, so to speak, like that was what you. That was what you're kind of zeroing in on was the was the hugeness of it. Definitely, definitely, yeah, right. Were you a fan of like say Black Sabbath things like that? That that got a little too uh, Grand Guignol for me. Okay, it's, it's again the theater took the best of it. I mean, again there was some great playing. You know, there's always there's always a, a behind every great rock band there's a great guitar player. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It, it's it's. I, I'm. I'm. It's not that I'm a purist, but uh, the, when the theatrical thing, you know, it takes over, it's good for them because the, you know, peop, there's lots of people who want to see that. For me, it's more like I want to hear some heavy, heavy duty music play, playing um, right. um, um, improvisation. Right. Uh, you can tell if it's happening right there. Did Did Zeppelin satisfy any of that for you? Like, like, did you feel like they were? Because you know they they did quite a bit of yeah spontaneity. I, I definitely like like a lot of lot, you know I cannot with, with Zeppelin it was uh, just the amazing ambient drum sounds that like you know made it completely different from anybody else you know there was I remember Bonham's so- drum sound was like something to like worship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that was great mm-hmm. um, we, we you touched on. Jeff Beck a couple times, but I would like to know, I'd like to just hear a little bit more about that relationship, which I know has gone on for so many years. And like, I'm curious, did, did that come about because he was a fan of Mahavishnu? Like, like, or how did you initially? Well, the way we met was we were both Jeff and Mahavishnu. We were in Zurich in the summer, I guess it was 73. And we played on subsequent nights in Zurich, and we stayed in the same hotel. It was had to be June, June 24th, because it was Jeff's birthday. <laughs> and uh, there was a big party in the Hotel Atlantis, and so obviously we ended up going to the party, and that was the first time I met Jeff, and we ended up, you know, two of us talking, like, forever about music we like, and, you know, f- both of us loved Marvin Gaye. It was, it was so nice to, you know, and it was not just Marvin Gaye, it was, you know, the whole, the whole sound, again, the whole feel, the grooves, just for an example, but it, it, that's that's one thing that I remember from the conversation. But he was very much interested in what I wanted to do, and it was after the craziness and the complexity of Mahavishnu. I was looking for something a little simpler, but still incredibly genuine, you know, music musically and valid, but almost getting back to more rock pop thing as opposed to right. uh, you know cl- climbing the mount olympus of <laughs> <laughs> of speed and and complexity which which you know was great for us but i you know i it was enough and we we talked and we you know we said we will do something and he was recording i guess that later that year uh blow was it yeah, blow by blow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, he he came and, and during the winter he all of a sudden shows up here at my house with some work tapes <laughs> And I, I I couldn't believe it. And so he played me some of the things, and then he said like this is done. But next record we have to work together. Uh, that which was wired. Right, right. right. So that was, uh, I guess nineteen yeah nineteen seventy six. And I already had my group group together, and the group was totally kicking 
but <laughs> he noticed. And so he uh, he came over and stayed at the stayed at the house here in the studio, and we recorded some some of the stuff for Wired, namely uh, the tune my tune Blue Wind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then uh, we did all the solos for the other other songs, and I ended up mixing half the album here. And uh, so that was that was it. And from then we decided, okay, '76 summer, we are going out big world tour. Jeff and my group backing him which was, you know, just a stroke of genius and luck. <laughs> and, and was that like, did you feel like you were bringing in people, you know, from both the jazz side and the rock side into that? Like you were kind of playing to like a sort of a blended audience or something or? or, or well, Jeff's, Jeff's audience really brought in a lot more sophisticated, old, more, not old school, but even you could say jazzy, jazzier, Especially after Blow by Blow, which was kind of you know pretty sophisticated for a rocker like Jeff, and uh, but then again he's a very sophisticated musician. People don't realize that at all. He's you know he's scarily aware, and uh, so uh, there was definitely a much more of a crossover audience. You know it wasn't just the guitar uh, guitar aficionados who just wanted to hear fast speed metal. They did the proto speed metal people that we used that I inherited from Mahavishnu and that was very nice and I and it influenced my band too that we started recording more vocals and more uh, R&B influenced things that lent themselves still to solos you know and improvisation but the music wasn't all balls out uh, I'm gonna impress the hell out of you you know I'm gonna impress you other way much more subtle so so and so at that point you were using the the guitar and you were able and you you two were kind of sharing the the front line of that presentation. Yeah, right? Well, actually, the the guitar didn't happen until later that year. I was still using the two two minimogs on on the side of you know, but I was standing up and you know we were relating much more and it was uh, I was I also had a timbale set up. I was play, play, playing timbales together with Tony drummer. So we, when when the, when the grooves got going, I, I got I got into that, and uh, it was it was just uh, again a very lucky break, yeah, very lucky break to 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 hook up Jeff with my band like that, and we ended up you know making a live album too, and. Uh, Oh, and the thing that was very interesting, there was never any iota of any kind of friction about me sounding too much like guitar. <laughs> For some reason, Jeff totally got it because he started sounding more like a synth. <laughs> you know what I mean? He kept saying it. He said like, that I'm influencing him and he's influencing me. You know, and there was, who cares whether it's synth or guitar? It's a voice and you can tell by the notes that the person plays that it's that it's him or me you know it's not or oh, this what is the sound no it's not that became secondary mm. well yeah that, that must have been an interesting experience like playing with i mean it sounds like that was a real meeting uh meeting in the middle from you know people from from different backgrounds i mean you, you, like you said ma vishnu was kind of more people who had had more of a jazz experience yeah. just moving into rock whereas Jeff was really coming from rock and and you know it sounds like you guys really were able to find something in Yeah he was a card carrying rocker right right So so what did that what did that 
feel like or what did you learn or take away well, from Well, I really like the fact that it gave us this le- legitimacy. He, he his you know label Jeff Beck, it was like immediately you know there's going to be some rocking going on. So we could sneak in, you know, all kinds of sophisticated interesting things and the people that show up the it was obviously quite a few larger crowds than f- for my band. So there was a great you know help and uh and again it was also a different crowd it was it was m- a little bit more mellow it, you know it wasn't it, it's there was something about the crazy electric stuff that we used to do that the the audience was mostly boys <laughs> you know and they they just they, they almost seem to be counting how many notes somebody can play in a <laughs> <laughs> nanosecond uh and uh the, the, the music appreciation crowd showed up much more with Jeff. Mm. Yeah, yeah. so there's just, you know, like a few more kind of like names and, you know, uh, projects that I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, you, you spoke about this, um, like this sort of card-carrying rocker thing re- regarding Jeff and like, you know, you've done a lot of other collaborations along those lines. The, the, the Neil Sean band? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it seems like another one of those situations where, you know, a lot of it, it, it's just kind of interesting because hearing that stuff, it seems like a lot of it goes kind of more in the, there's, there's some instrumental stuff, but there's some stuff you were doing that was just kind of like rock and roll, straight ahead rock and yeah. roll. Right. So tell me about that, that project. Uh, yeah. Neil is another, not to, you know, forget certain names that like pop up, you know, at the top of my head, it should be, is Neil, you know, just a phenomenal, phenomenal guitar person and uh we uh we used to play uh on on a tour journey uh would be op- would open for us for, for, uh, on the tour with jeff that whole big tour okay okay so that that's where i met and and, and the whole band would you know come and stand in a winterland you know when we were playing so listen to us so they were big fans and during the sound check uh we would get on the on the stage and Neil would play guitar and I would play drums obviously <laughs> and so we ended up jamming like lots of the sound checks on the tour just the two of us and it was we really hit it off he really liked my drumming and uh, so it was if we were gonna do something it would be not not just synthesizer and get like a band we would, we would, we would you know we would just create the band in the studio with me playing drums and synths and we only got Colin Hodgkinson, the, the great English bass player. And we wrote wrote some tunes, and we were obviously, and some of the tunes we were totally aiming for radio. You know, even though it was, you know, a lot of it was very sophisticated instrumental rock. There was a few few songs here and there that I'm very proud of, and uh, it didn't bite as much as as much as we were hoping for. Because you know his his thing was journey and journey was like as big as ever, so they just couldn't you know be bothered. You know the the label. Sorry, <laughs> it's not sour grapes, but it it sort of is. And uh, because the, the music, sh- hopefully, well the first album we did together actually, believe it or not, uh, became uh, in uh, for Rolling Stones in Germany it was album of the year. <laughs> in 1983 is that is that untold, uh, untold passion? passion yeah, yeah. Right, right i think it was 82 or but, but the album we did it in 81 so when it came out but probably 82 or 83 it became album of the year mm-hmm. in the f- 
the German Rolling Stone. So there you go. <laughs> and uh, it was, I don't know how to describe it, but it was, again, totally organic process. And uh, getting hearing Neil, again, unleash something so spontaneous and relentless, you know, it was just uh, another example of my favorite type of playing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if, if I can point to people, you know, he's definitely one of them. Now, you know, like I know that, you know, obviously he had been um, with Santana and like, did he have much of a jazz background? Not really, but he had ears. Right. And he heard it all and he knew to do what to do anything in any setting. He was, you know, incredibly versatile. And uh, also this, the choice of his tones, he can be like, you know, brutally, brutally hardcore heavy metal and then go into this totally beautiful, gentle, clean, and make it work just as well. You know, it's just, you know, he's a rare, rare bird. Now, I, I'm, I'm sort of interested about, you know, you spoke about these songs that were, you know, is, to some degree crafted for radio. I think, you know, No More Lies, great, great song, you know, great, you know, driving rock song. It was, yeah, all the elements were there, ABC, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm curious, because, you know, especially like playing with a band like Journey, who, like you said, they were at their height, that sound was was everywhere. Like, were you a fan of, you know, kind of straight ahead radio rock of that time? Like was, When it was that good, like, especially, you know, the Journey stuff, I, yeah. I would definitely appreciate it. You know, obviously now everybody's Don't Stop Believing is like, it became, you know, almost national anthem now, so... <laughs> Yeah, that that is, there is no denying how how great and how how well done that is, and uh, you know you making a whole album. Why not you know do a couple of tunes that might actually click and get get to the radio? Mm -hmm. There there was uh, wasting time, and uh, I'm talking to you. Those two tunes on the first album uh, my, are probably my favorite. It was, and so Steve Perry was with them when you were doing the. He was still, yeah, he was still with uh, Journey, yeah. Right, right, okay, yeah. That, so that they were sort of like at their at peak. their peak, definitely, yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. Uh, so so okay, so I kind of wanted to loop back around to Tony because you said he was, you know, your favorite drummer. You'd seen him with Lifetime, and then there are these later collaborations. I know that partly on that Joy of Flying record, and then later in, in I think, 91, you had this band. We did a tour. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm just kind of curious if you could take me through the like the later period of you and Tony. Like yeah. How well, that, well yeah. I don't remember exactly how the thing came came about uh, to, to for me to collaborate with him on, on, uh, on his album, on the Joy of Flying album, but it was uh, it was just something, I guess we talked, and I said, why don't you come up to my studio and we'll, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll go crazy here. And we did uh, we did two tunes that are here actually in the old building before this was before this was even built, and uh, we did something that was totally uh, the, the Aries. There's a cut which is just straight up Indian style improvisation, uh, and then uh, another tune which was called. Uh, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a sh nice shuffle that we just did the two of us do. And uh, it, it, it re we really clicked, you know. And the the thing that blows people's mind, I mean, it's, it blows my mind, is, is Eris, the 
which is basically just an improvised, uh, you could call it a sort of based on a raga, but, but I don't know what the name would be. <laughs> you know, it wasn't official. And uh, and it's, it's only uh, a synthesizer pulsating rhythm, which is called sample and hold for, for the tech geeks. <laughs> yeah. And it just goes, you know, and, and keeps the rhythm. And Tony and I go crazy on top of it. And it just, I don't know, I don't remember how much we rehearsed or if we rehearsed at all. We, we had to work out a couple of, a couple of turnarounds that happened in the tune. But uh, yeah, that is, that is very special. Mm. And then uh, later, uh, well, a couple of years later, actually, we, I ran into him at the NAMM show in LA, in Anaheim. And he said he was thinking of maybe, you know, going out if I wanted to go out and play some, you know, little summer summer tour. So I already had this place here. So then they they all they, they came here, and we spent like a week rehearsing here in the live room. And uh, interestingly, on the bass player was again Fernando Sa- Saunders, the, the bass player from my band, who was like one of the most amazing people, not just bass players, but people and musicians. He's like, you don't know where, which planet he came from. And uh, Jordan Rudis, who is who is like a big prog dream theater, yeah, yeah, seriously. So that was pre dream theater. This was pre dream theater, right, right, yes. Right, right, right. And because I needed some what's called a rhythm keyboard, <laughs> which is you know not, not a phrase that existed before, because I want I wanted I'm a keyboard player, but I like to take the role of a lead guitar like you know entity. <laughs> so I needed some sort of a backing. So that that was the four piece. Uh, band that we ended up together, and we played. There was, there was, it was just wonderful to to hear Tony in in you know and on a daily basis and play with him like this. It, it, it because it wasn't wasn't really jazz. It was you know because I I, I remember him mainly. I mean, originally from, from all the great greatest Miles records, Miles Davis records from the from the 60s, which was probably the best Miles Davis ever sounded that that's it but he could tony could uh, it wasn't like rock or it wasn't it, 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 it was just his spirit just totally carrying and bending everything around himself it's just amazing how how he can become such a fulcrum you know and you can see it there there was a there's some videos from the montreal jazz festival yeah incredible video yeah there's yeah. a full set yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so you can you can see what was what's happening yeah, that that was. God, I miss him. <laughs> mm. Just what a loss. Oh, anyway. Was there was there talk about that band making a record or doing more like beyond that? No, it was really just a one-off uh, um, because everybody was you know in doing their own do their own things. I was you know I was in in some things. Doing some things, it, it was just not a, not in the stars, you know. But it was it was just the perfect timing to go and do a short term summer tour, just on East Coast and Midwest. Can, can you tell me more about? Okay, this is something I've been very very curious about because like Tony is such a central figure in this whole conversation about these kind of two streams coming together. Obviously, there with Lifetime and and sixty nine, like, and and like you said in this band playing rock rock like things beautifully you know sounding you know i just wish there were more examples of us to be able to hear him doing that mm-hmm. what 
what was Tony Williams's um what what were what were his uh rock favorites like what, what what was he most into in rock like were there certain specific bands he was really into or drummers you know or? we never discussed it because mm-hmm. it was it, it, the communication with him was was like there was not much specific data exchanged other than once we started playing uh, or we decided we're gonna play this and uh it's this is the tune and we you know we'll we'll take it there but as far as like i don't i don't i don't even know who he liked you know, I mean, it's 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 at his level. I would imagine he li- he liked himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's inevitable because if you if you play like that and then you go and you listen to a pl- to a playback, you know, and uh, just shaking the building with 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 uh, Miles Davis. You know, of all the all the jazz drummers that came before him, it's just he to- totally took the whole deck, threw it on the table, and is you know reshuffled everything mm. and that is my biggest thanks because he turned you know he he shook me to my core with, with what he did to, to, to drumming what drumming could do you know how, how he responded to miles and how they kicked each other you know back and forth mm. and then he was having him do it to me was you know great privilege <laughs> but also an amazing fun well, you can see in that video, you two are you're you're very often looking at him, and there's a lot of smiling going back and yeah. forth during that gig. Like you can tell that you're very exhilarated by. Well, that. it's yeah, it's my, he's my dream drummer, so mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's basically what it what it how it came down. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just fascinating how, like you said, there's that style that he sort of pioneered, you know, with Miles and all these Blue Note records that he was on. There's this kind of '60s Tony, and then but the 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 '91 Tony playing with you it's a whole different thing it's yeah. a, but but it's equally kind of mind-blowing because he doesn't sound like a jazz drummer he doesn't sound like a rock drummer he just kind of was like what is this he was always you know? a very disruptive force yeah you know he's yeah. like you, all the drummers that came before they were there to keep time and he was there to mess with time when when he showed up and uh he would like throw these complete curveballs the, the fills that came out of nowhere that you wouldn't, you know, like if some other drummer tried it, you would say, what are you doing? <laughs> but with him, it was just, oh, I see what you're doing, and I like it. <laughs> yeah, do some more of that. Mm. Yeah. Right, like it's like the ideas would not, if he was not, if they were not played with such confidence and just such, like, command, it, yeah. it, it would just not fly. Like, he, it's like... Yeah, I know what you mean. There's an attitude. Yeah, he could, he could get away with stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. And 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 yeah, seeing that um, seeing that video especially, there's these like little moments where he you know he he does almost sound like a metal drummer to me at, at, at yeah something yeah sure at points of that you yeah. know like 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 the 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 power of it is insane mm-hmm. for I mean, he's such a little guy yeah when you you don't realize that all this just comes out of him that was just yeah fantastic mm. um. So yeah, there's just like a couple other things you you've been involved. In. I just kind of want to like throw out some, you know, different things here and there, and just you know get your take on this or that. Mm-hmm. But like, okay, so we're talking about drummers. The uh, the timeless record with John Abercrombie and Jack. Yeah. Oh. So so what? Um, yeah. What what can you tell me? I mean, that's obviously a very special record that means a lot to a lot of people. Like to what, me. Yeah. Well, what what can you tell me about that? Well, John and I were friends. From almost from the very first day I came to to, to America, we we ended up sharing an apartment in Boston. He, he, when I was in Berkeley, he was living in Boston too, and 
and I remember just an incredible amount of fun and laughing because he was like one of the wittiest people <laughs> that I've ever met and on top of the you know incredibly gifted and talented musician and we played in different clubs off and on he would uh, I th- if I remember it correctly he even came in and sat in with me in the strip club <laughs> when I played the organ the organ duo so John and uh and it was we sort of drifted apart because I after after Boston I I, I left to go with Sarah Vaughn and Mahavishnu and on and on in my group and I would run into him here and there and uh, it wasn't I, I don't know obviously it had to be his idea uh, after after Mahavishnu broke up let's let's you know let's do this let's do this let's do a record ECM ECM yeah sure beautiful beautiful production. Uh, Manfred Eicher and and Jack too. I mean, I, I, again, I that's that's a. I think Jack is the person who gets overlooked. If you if you go on and on and on about Tony, Jack Dijonette is the other side of Tony's coin. It's like they 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 are so similar in a sense. You know, Jack is a little bit lighter. He's not as as uh, thunderous as Tony Tony was, but still, the inventiveness. God, I loved playing with him, but that was the only time I actually played with him was on that on that album. So, so, so that band did not. There was really no live. That was just sort of a date. There was a. We rehearsed for a couple of days. Went to studio for a couple of days. That was it. Goodbye. No, well, there was another album, like f- about four or five years later, with with Michael. I think Michael Brecker was on it too. Oh, okay. Another another one of uh, yeah. of John's. John's, yeah. And was Jack on that? T- uh, sorry, I'm not. I think so. Not yeah. sure if I'm familiar with yeah. that one. I got to yeah. go check that one out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But the, the timeless. The title says it all. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to be cute about it, but th- that is, and not only that, the, the the tune "Timeless" is so such a part of the canon of our music that we do, that I I, I with my group when we went on on to you know on tour. I think we played it probably every night. Mm, mm. It's, it was just inescapable, and it bent, lends itself to all kinds of you know interpretation and var- variations. So, and then what was nice on the on the on the John on the Abercrombie's record was also that there was piano things that we did, and the organ. I was able to get into my organ persona, you know, and play tribute to Larry. <laughs> right, <laughs> Larry right. Larry Young, exactly. Who, yeah, who was just. Turned my head around, uh, but I was I was still in Prague before I came over. And I heard this record. Oh, I, Unity, we're talking. Yeah, about. Unity. Yeah, right. I'm pointing to Unity by Larry Young and Elvin on the, on this record. Yes. Oh my God. So that that I was still in Prague it was before I came over here in the first place. So there was I was just beside myself to have a chance to go and do a honest to goodness organ trio project mm. like that. Well, so that must have been especially amazing if you were into Larry from Unity and you were into Tony from Miles, and then 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 the hearing Lifetime, you you had these were like all your your guys. Uh, yeah, and yeah. don't forget Elvin. Yeah, exactly. I ended up playing with him a lot too. It, right. It, it, it's just all my f- favorite drummers. I ended up recording and playing with. It's just you know, blessing. Yeah, I, I I actually had thought about that, like like just sort of going through the history, like thinking about. You know, Tony Elvin Cobham, uh, Dijonette, you know, it's just like this, it's like the elite, you know what I mean? Like, like Absolutely, yeah. 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 
It's phenomenal. Um, what about um, what about like Love Devotion Surrender? What about that record? That was one crazy session. Uh, it was uh, there was Billy was gonna be basically playing. I think Billy was gonna be playing, but Mike Shreve also played Santana's drummer, and uh, some I don't know how it ended up that I I they asked me to go and play drums too. <laughs> And uh, uh, maybe Billy was busy. Billy was off somewhere for a few days. So I said, you know, I didn't even have a drum kit then. It was like so long ago. So I actually, Billy, an amazingly generous gesture, let me use his. <laughs> I picked up his, his, I can use his small kit. And uh, it was, again, it was an amazingly odd experience. It was sort of a, it's almost psychedelic in a sense, I'm, even though we weren't, you know, high or ver- we weren't very high. Uh, Larry always, you know, handed things around. Larry Young, I mean, peace. May you rest in peace, sweetheart. And uh, we were like, we really got into something that uh, that took over the whole studio. It happened to be the same studio that we where we recorded uh, the first Mahavishnu record, mm. the studio on 52nd Street, Columbia. CBS, and I I enjoyed it tremendously. I was I felt validated that I you know I I I knew I was a drummer and I knew I could play, but they did they know, <laughs> so that was that was a beautiful experience for me. Mm. Were, were you a, a fan of Santana? Like very familiar with his with his work? We were yeah, but I mean obviously, it's uh, the Latin. Uh, fusion like that to use the word fusion but the, in, a, in a different sense in a pure, 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 pure meaning of the word right it's, it's something that I love and I, you know I ended up uh, using a lot and, and doing it later many years later with Miami, with Miami Vice there was um, a lot of the music was very much uh, I always say like you know this is for Carlos <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you exactly. know it's, it's just like nice lead these guitars sound like and with you know tremendous percussion rolling, and there was lots of score and lots of music in the for the show that I did. That was just like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but that was much much later. And I, I really really liked it. There was when it it was just again very original. And uh, we played different tours. We we played uh, uh, we went to Japan with Jeff and Santana in uh, it was 1986. We played some festivals. And played Budokan, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the place. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, and, and uh, anyway, so the, the the album Love, Devotion, Surrender was was a was a trip. It was fantastic. And that was also sort of like a one-off thing, not not it done was, live. Yeah, that, no, they did do some live things. Okay, it was it was again, it was in the twilight days of Mahavishnu Orchestra, and uh, we had a break before going to Japan. And they played. They played. Uh, Carlos and John McLaughlin played. I think some some gigs around. They played Hawaii, and uh, I don't know where, but they did do some gigs. But it was just Billy playing drums. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I, I I was curious about. You know, we kind of already touched on this, but in terms of like, you know, this this whole like heavy metal thing. Um, you know, when was, when did that, was it Van Halen that was sort of like 
the the first of that to sort of like pop up on your radar? Or were you like like how much were you kind of tuning in to like you know the '80s stuff like you know Iron Maiden or Judas Priest or all this stuff? Like was it was it was that stuff like on your? The, the, it had to be special bands. It was I, I, I would I would imagine Zeppelin was probably the first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if people like to call it heavy metal. I, I don't care what they call it, but you know I, I really good good times bad times. You know the first album. And you know it was just it was just kick ass. It was beautiful, mm-hmm. and I think and I I it's not that I was following it that much, but it, it would be I would hear something and say I like that, and and you know it would turn out to be, you know Eddie when when Eddie when Helen first came out, mm-hmm. and also obviously Neil Neil Sean, even though it was it was more like a pop pop rock band. But that, that that kind of that kind of thing, you know, you know, it's. It, I was not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I was into heavy metal as such, because we, you know, we we were uh, again metal heavy metal bebop, <laughs> <laughs> because we we also played some strange unexpected stuff on top of it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, so you never really you you weren't necessarily checking that stuff out live. Like, like did you did you ever you know find yourself you know, at, at a show that was like a full-on metal show, and like no, well, not not by my cho- not by my choosing. <laughs> <laughs> if we played the show, so you know, we played show, show and and uh, one of the bands was ZZ Top. Okay, so okay. you know, loved it, and, and that was probably the loud, lo- they were louder than us, and I loved it. That was, I don't know, it was some outdoor, outdoor stadium somewhere, God, Alabama, Fourth of July or something. <laughs> That was with the Jeff Beck. There, there was uh, no. That was actually still Mahavishnu. Oh, still Mahavishnu. Yeah, wow. a long time. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, so th- th- these bands just. I mean, I can't think of you know when you if you ask me what, can you think of a band I, and I, then I say oh wow there were these there was this band that that we were opening for or we were on the same bill. So yeah, that was ZZ Top. Wonderful, wonderful band. Yeah, I I just think it's I, I'm I'm sort of fascinated by the idea that you know that there was this moment in time where these things were coming together this kind of like late 60s early 70s period and it, you know it's just, it's just sort of interesting that you were saying that you know that maybe because everyone sort of went went a different way after that you know everyone in Mahavishnu went a different way um, I don't know it's just interesting to think about that you know maybe that thread wasn't really that nobody really necessarily picked, picked that up and, and, and ran with it. You know, that maybe there was kind of this like, you know, unfinished business. But it was a classic case of a one-off where you just had to get this right amount of right kind of people at the right time, you know, in the one place to be in New York city and, you know, start rehearsing in this, in this loft. And, uh, uh, those kind of things don't happen that often, you know, to have exactly the right mixture of people. And uh, hmm. yeah, I, I don't hear any uh, heritage that we that we would have established. You know, obviously, a lot of speed metal people would disagree. <laughs> they think that you know, but it's uh, if you really look under the surface, there is there is uh, speed, but as far as uh, sophistication, there is not much there. And I'm always into that. Well, I mean, maybe that's why there's such a culture of, you know, you have like the Mahavishnu Project and things like that, like a culture of like really going back and... I mean, tribute. Yeah, 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 yeah. right, right. I mean, I mean, it's, you know, people are, 
people are very reverent of that period, you know, for a reason, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it, it, Mahavishnu Project, I, I, I did a, I played with them for, for a Moogfest, which was uh, 2006, I think. And it, it was a, what an experience. It was because it was like I could walk in, they knew everything, uh, all of my music, and we could just rehearse quickly once and then go on stage and play. You know, it's, it's, it's the ideal way. It's like re- rehearseless performance, you know, just just about. And I wish if, if it could be like that, I would probably play live more often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's just not, not to be. I am... Uh, Speaking of now, <laughs> yeah, 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 no, let's, let's, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I finally, uh, last year, almost, it's gonna be a year ago now that I finished uh, one album, which is right here. Yeah, this, this, the uh, seasons, right? Seasons part one. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is not, uh, Mike cannot see it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Jan Hammer seasons part one, and people can get this anywhere. This is like, this is, yeah, yeah, this, yeah this, right. This, I guess it's all streaming and Spotifying and all that un- unfortunate stuff. <laughs> I just love I I love you know LPs, as far as because you get you know the art and notes and you can read about sure. it and listen and even CD you know CD is beautiful but I don't know what to do with with streaming. I I really like if I if I like something I really like to be able to own it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And if if somebody else owns it and they say you know you you buy it but we'll keep it on our servers said no I I don't I'm not buying it. Mm. Yeah, but uh, anyway, this this was a work of love for. It took me a few years, and I'm working on the second part. And uh, again, it's a combination of all the different things that I've been through, and it's the theatrical things, the, the cinematic things, combined with uh, ferocious playing mm-hmm, of, here mm-hmm. and here and there. So you know, it sort of covers all those. And then I'm also putting together a. Uh, that that'll be probably before part two, uh, some sort of an EP of my jazz sketches, actual jazz with, j- with acoustic piano, drums, and you know th- things like that that I did on my own over the years. And I have it like, I'm listening to it. I say, wow, I should do something. I, I should put it out. So that's gonna be later this year, some sort of a jazz. I think it's gonna be called like jazz and other side or jazz period. Something like that is now. Is that sort of like one man band type of stuff where you're actually yeah over still different? yeah okay yeah so so that's really that's really where you're like like you, you've really you know homed in on the one man band thing. It's like, the studio th- studio yeah. syndrome. Right. Yeah, right. Where, and I I really I I mean I do that and I I had people come come here. I had uh, you know Michael Brecker was here to when I did the record uh, Drive that he played on two tunes. Well, I get sad when I, when I think of people that are no longer with us. And uh, Michael, there was a whole, uh, just to go go back to the loft that we had, there was a jam sessions like almost every other night. And there was always, you know, drums, electric piano, but there was always at least two or three saxophone players. There was Michael Brecker, Steve Grossman, and Dave Liebman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And th- these three just like knocked us out. <laughs> It was it was just wonderful. It was basically that's what Coltrane caused. <laughs> it was it was all you know the spawn of of his tremendous impact on music, and these guys just carried it. And like everybody had their own style, but it was you know this Coltrane thing was the spirit was just going through. And I'll never forget those times. Those were like 
wonderful musical, exhaustive, but you know, beautiful. And then whenever we went, went out with playing with Elvin Jones, one of them would go and play. Exactly, right. Yeah. And is there some is there some Elvin that has both of them on it or, or? probably yeah, yeah I, the live at the lighthouse I'm pretty sure Liebman's on it I'm not sure if Steve Grossman is but then yeah then obviously both of them playing with Miles I mean it's such yeah, like everyone's right, sort of mixing right. together that was this whole crowd yeah 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 so that's where my my uh, like jazzy jazz I mean I, by by jazz I mean uh, with four 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 time and and sure. uh, acoustic piano and. Uh, so that that should be interesting to see what people see after all these years that absolutely I, I actually accumulated these things and I I have to do something with uh, that's to somewhere has to come out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just 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 like one more question of curiosity. So we talked about all these people that you've collaborated with from all across the sort of jazz and rock spectrum. W- was you know. W- were there sort of like was there like one like dream collaborator that you always wished you w- you could or would have played with that you you weren't able to or like who is the like the ultimate because you, know, you played with Miles you played with all these people like who 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 is the one that you always wished you could have played with? Well, basically, the all of these things have expiration date on them, and uh, in if it was sixties, it would be Miles. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it was. Uh, early seventies, still. I mean, it would be, it'd be Hendrix. Before you know, before he passed away, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I can't. I. I pretty much played with all the people that I. I would idolize, or that I would really have great desire to combine my playing with. You know, to to see how we can bounce off each other. I pretty much. If you look at my. Uh, history. Yeah, no, they, they're all there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, you, you tell me something. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you, yeah, if you say from like Tony Williams to Eddie Van Halen, I'd say that's a pretty good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Range. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I think that's about what I what, about what I got. Yeah, so. we've covered a lot. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> thank, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate. Sure. It. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much for listening. Huge thanks to Jan for his time. And stay tuned for the next episode of the Heavy Metal Bebop Podcast coming soon.